For those of you who are guests, last week we had the wonderful opportunity to study the lifestyle of two sweet older saints of the Old Testament who were looking forward to Christ's birth. And that anticipation of studying uh, the future of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and their own lives from Old Testament prophecy helped them govern their lives day to day. Bible anticipation about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ helps us live. Gives us direction and how to live. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again for us, isn't he? The Bible says the next time that we see Jesus, his feet will not touch the ground. We'll meet him in the air. We often talk about the coming of Jesus. Well, in the Bible, there are two times his feet hit the ground, so to speak. The first time was at his birth. The next time that his feet are going to hit the ground, literally, is going to be when he comes to reign as king. And that reign, the Bible tells us, is going to be a thousand years long. During that reign, Satan and all of his minions will be bound and inoperable, rendered ineffective for a millennia, a thousand years of time. And Jesus will rule the world, and he'll rule the world with us. The New Testament church will be, along with Jesus, King Jesus, the political rulers of the world. I believe personally that the Old Testament saints will be those who are overseeing the worship of the kingdom at that time. Old Testament saints will be very much about adoring our physical Savior in an appropriate manner while the New Testament church rules. It's going to be a time of great peace. The world will be spiritually renovated for sure. It's fascinating time. The Bible speaks often about that time. That's going to be a time where there will be millions of people who are on the earth living under the rule of Jesus Christ who are yet to, to surrender their hearts to Jesus Christ. And any time one of those people lifts their voice against Jesus, that voice will be removed. The Bible says that Jesus in that thousand years will be the king of peace for sure, but he'll rule with a rod of iron. He'll be judge of all the earth, not just theoretically, metaphorically, but literally. Amen. Literally for a thousand years. But that's the second time his feet hit the ground. The next time we see him, We'll see him what the Bible calls in the clouds. As a matter of fact, if you'll take your Bible and go to Acts chapter 1 this morning. Acts chapter 1. When Jesus ascended, after the days he walked the earth following his resurrection, he gave his ascension address. He told the living 
post-resurrection saints at that time in that company that they had a mission and that mission was to take his gospel to their city and then to their region and then to their countrymen and then to their world at that time. After Jesus ascended, the angel came because the people were still learning (laughs) the totality of the ministry of Christ on earth up to his ascension. In verse 9 it says, and after he said these things, after he gave them the mission, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And I've always thought that was a fascinating, intimate, tender phrase. They didn't appear in the sky where they were looking up for their Jesus. They stood next to them for comfort and for consolation. In verse 11, they said, men of Galilee, why should you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come just in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He's going to come again. Jesus talked about that time in John chapter 14, didn't he? He said, don't be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am ye may be also, and someday I am going to come for you. And I will receive you, so that where I am, there you may be also. But the Lord Jesus is using this post-resurrection ascension scene through the voice of the angels to remind them about what he had already told them in John chapter 14, but to settle their hearts. But I find it interesting, the angels direct them to do something which is really opposite of what we ask you to do all the time. They said, stop looking up, or why are you looking up for this Jesus? He's going to come again. We, we always tell you to look around for lost people and to look up while you're doing that for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're looking for our hope. But it's a balance in the Christian life that the New Testament gives us and instructs us, and we're going to look at the next couple weeks together here, of how do we anticipate the hope of seeing Jesus in the clouds? Maybe today, the Bible says no man knows the hour or the moment, except God himself. How do we keep anticipating the return of our Savior while remaining faithful here? How do we anticipate the imminent return of Christ in the clouds and not be distracted from that while we're maintenancing our lives here on earth? I think we do it in similar fashion to Simeon and Anna from last week. They were looking for the first advent, the first time Jesus' little feet would touch the ground. And that governed their lives in holiness. We're looking to see the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to discuss how our lives should be governed this week and next in light of the time we're going to see him for the first time 
face to face. Go with me now over to the book of Titus, if you would. I find it interesting in what we call the pastoral letters. First and Second Timothy and Titus, that even in letters given to us that discuss the, the makeup of the church and the function or structure of the church and how she should run and so forth, that Paul mentions the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ a couple different times to Timothy as he pastors the people at Ephesus and to Titus as he pastors the souls on the island of Crete. He says here in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, he mentions the first coming, the first advent of Christ, his birth and its purpose, and then he's going to mention his appearing, which we look forward to. He says, for the grace of God, that's Jesus Christ, has already appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us once we're saved, once we own this Savior that's appeared by his grace, he instructs us by his grace to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. But the sentence is just beginning. While we're living that way as the influence from his first advent, and we've trusted him, this is what we're doing. We're always looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Go back with me now a couple pages to your left to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I think that's an appropriate wording for the people who lived on the island of Crete because they were born again out of very, very dark lifestyles. And they were influenced to move back to those lifestyles. And Paul says, no, Christ came to change your life. When you're born again, he changes your life. And you're lived this way. And while you're living this way, we want to maintain that balance of proper living and always looking. Proper living and always looking for the imminent return of Jesus in the clouds. Paul says here for himself in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have what? Love disappearing. You can go study that in your own time. I really believe that this is speaking of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's speaking about a reward that's given to the believer after the Lord Jesus Christ appears. So he's not speaking of his first advent here, but he's speaking of the church being removed from this earth and there's going to be a particular reward that's given to every one of us if we adore or look forward to 
His appearing. So let's go over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Luke thought it appropriate to pen words about the next time the Lord Jesus Christ appears. Uh, certainly Paul has. Titus and Timothy, other passages, 2 Corinthians 5 and so forth. We're certainly not taking an exhaustive look this morning out of all the passages in the New Testament that speak about the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to take us to himself. The Apostle John did the same thing, and I find it fascinating that he would do this because if you recall, the Apostle John was writing uh, the folks, these three letters to folks in these churches because they were influenced by a group of people that taught that Jesus existed, but Jesus never became a man. There's no way God could ever take on a body because God is pure and sinless and everything that's material is affected by all that's wrong in this world. So how in the world could purity take on impurity? And uh, there's a certain group of people called the Gnostics back at that time, and uh, they couldn't reason their way through that mystery of God becoming man. And so the Apostle John clears that up in chapter 1, and by the time we get to chapter 2, he's not only cleared that up, he said, you know what, this same Jesus that did become a man, that you've been saved by, is also coming again. And so there's a certain way that you should desire to live your life so that when he appears, we'll have confidence before him. It is appearing. So we look at verse 28 of 1 John 2, and we're going to read down through chapter 3 and verse 3. It says, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So you see that, that lifestyle that, that always is wed to, right? Linked to, looking forward to this appearing. Verse th chapter 3, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now are we children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Again, there's that direct association between us looking for this glorious appearing and that governing the way we live on a day-to-day -day basis. I've always asked myself this question, how can I maintenance in my own life a constant looking and a faithful living, without being distracted by either one. You say, Pastor Tim, that's a strange question you ask. Well, I am a strange individual, okay? But I'm always wrestling with that in my mind. It always is, it's got to be one or the other, and the Bible teaches it's really both. As I'm looking, that looking is always governing. 
that's always governing. But the New Testament, where we're going to spend the rest of today and next week, is going to focus on one particular church that really understood this balance of what it meant to look and to live. Right? To look and to live. Paul told the people on the island of Crete, the Apostle John has given us here some admonition about how looking governs living. We saw last week and how even Simeon and Anna, their anticipation of seeing the Christ child physically govern the way they lived. They were right, full of the Holy Spirit. They were righteous. They were devout. They were persevering people. They were faithful people. All of that is true and should be true of us as we've seen even in the New Testament. But with even a more refined focus, a particular focus, God decided to give us an example church, if you will, a model church in the New Testament that explicitly tells us what holy living looks like in light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, we're going to look at the whole book of 1 Thessalonians over the next couple weeks, not exhaustively, but particularly to this point of knowing how to live as we continue to look for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So go over with me to 1 Thessalonians, if you're not there already. And I want to look at five different passages in this letter that are going to help us understand that these people were governed by their anticipation. Chapter 1 and verse 10. There are five chapters in this small letter, and each chapter concludes with a mention of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here in verse number 10, we'll go up to verse 9, I suppose is okay. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God and from idols to serve a living and a true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Okay. There's a waiting. There's a, the grammar here is an eager anticipation of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. Go over with me to verse 17 of chapter 2. It says here, But we, brethren having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So that verse tells us that it's not only an eager anticipation for seeing Jesus face to face, there's going to be something incredibly glorious about seeing Jesus face to face together. There's a unique glory in that for a believer to see him together. It's fascinating here on earth as a family when you have an opportunity to take a trip and to go see a landscape 
or historic destination um, with a family. Um, I think the Hobies, even in North Carolina, was it, stopped and went and saw the USS Wisconsin. And you took a big family photo by that. It's great to know that you saw these things as a family. I remember walking up to the, to the precipice of the, uh, the Grand Canyon with my family and, and um, hearing just simply a gasp and no words, right? Uh, that will always be uh, in our hearts and minds the memory of, of having done that together. Well, when we see Jesus, right, there's never going to be a more glorious sight for any of us. But then to have done this together, Oh my goodness, maybe today, maybe today. But that anticipation is something that does govern our lives. Look at the end of chapter 3 together, if you would. Verse 11, it says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. And for all people, just as we also do for you, and there's a purpose in all this loving each other. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul mentions that theme again with all the saints. So again, we see that highlighted, that our looking governs our living. Our anticipation instructs us how to live. And here, it's to live holy and to encourage each other to, to live holy lifestyles together so that we can present ourselves together with confidence before the Lord. And I don't want us to miss the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 3 and the emphasis of seeing Jesus together. Right? Because we're going to find out in the Thessalonian church next week that the way they lived was uniquely and explicitly for the purpose of helping each other live wisely today because of who they might see tomorrow. They not only saw Jesus together, they were preparing together to meet Jesus As Pastor Hobie often reminds us, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian in the New Testament local church. We never go this New Testament church lifestyle alone. We're always preparing each other for that day. For that day. Let's go to chapter 4 and verse 13. This is probably the most um, famous, if you will, most um, obvious most familiar text on the appearing of Jesus that you know of in the New Testament. If you know your Bibles and you've been a believer for a long time, but for some of you that have been recently saved in the last days, weeks, or months, uh, this will be new to you possibly. But this is, this is a, um, a joyous passage for many of us who anticipate and live to see Jesus in the clouds. But we do not want you to be uninformed, verse 13. Brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as those, as do the rest, who have no hope. It's a very fascinating statement because people that truly don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, they just know about him. 
Just having knowledge of Jesus Christ is not enough to keep someone from grieving at death. But those who know Him, their mourning is of a different nature. So he says here, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have died or fallen asleep so that you will not grieve as those who don't have Jesus and have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep or passed away. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them where? In the clouds. Remember Acts 1? The angels' announcement, the two men that were standing next to them. That was Luke. This is Paul. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. His feet don't touch the ground in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And we're supposed to do something again together with that promise. We're to comfort one another right now. Looking always leads to proper living, and we never live alone when it comes to spiritual progress. Okay? Now, chapter 5. Let's go over to chapter 5 and verse 23. Paul begins the conclusion of this first letter to this church by saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming or the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think repetition does aid learning. Looking governs living. And it's mentioned here again. Looking governs living. But I would also like to say this, as you go back to, um, I'll tell you what, go back to, hold your finger here in chapter 5 and go back to chapter 1. Two fingers, two passages, okay? Because this is where we're going to go next and conclude for this morning. Looking governs living. But I would like to, uh, to, to confidently state this, that true born again believers will persevere unto experiencing both realities. True born-again believers will persevere because grace compels them to do so. To discipline themselves unto looking while they're disciplined by grace unto living. That's just what Christians do. Okay? This is something we may wrestle with from time to time because we're still carrying around this old body with us and its old inclinations. But when the grace of God in Jesus Christ transforms our hearts, it's a transformation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And when you're a new person, 
in Jesus Christ, everything about you changes. And there's a different pilot at the controls. And that pilot is always, by His grace, compelling you to look and to live. And while you're here, don't live alone. You're not going to spend eternity alone. So why in the world will we live life alone? In this spiritual pursuit. We're preparing ourselves now to be holy, to be like Christ in our character, because when we see Him, we're going to glare, stare, not glance, at holiness itself. And God wants us to be familiar with that. Characteristic trait of our God when we see Him. I find it very interesting. I don't want to get into the depths of it because we could go pretty, pretty deep. But all I can tell you is, for some reason, in this book that's written to this church that's with a laser focus going to teach us how to live every day in light of what we're looking for in our blessed hope, that two out of five times, and really I could probably say three out of five times within immediate contexts, the, the characteristic, the, 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 the attribute, if you will, of God, that's the focus of living in preparation of seeing Jesus is holiness. It's holiness. It's to be set apart from this old world and its system and to pursue what it actually means to be set apart in the way we live in light of who we're looking for. So it's kind of getting used to as best we can in our fallen humanity. It's getting used to an environment that's going to be new and holy and unlike anything that we're kind of familiar with in this old dark world. Okay? So, are you preparing yourself with somebody else unto holy living to see your holy Savior? That's not difficult to understand, I hope. I hope that's an easy question. It has to be honored by me first. As pastor here, long before it's going to be honored by anybody else. We're going to look at three particular points in relationship uh, to this letter over the next week. But we're going to look at just the first one this morning, and we're going to let you be dismissed. So if you take notes on paper in your device, we're going to consider the nature of faithful living. The nature of faithful living. Now, uh, we understand that living right, is done while we're looking. We can say the Thessalonian church was uh, always living in light of their great anticipation. We could say they had a great expectation. And that expectation governed the way they lived. Now we're going to see that, uh, that this living has a fundamental source to it. Next week, we're going to look at the nurturing of this faithful living. We're going to look at the nature of it today, and then how is it nurtured? How do we maintenance faithful living as we walk with the Lord? 
And we're going to see that in all five chapters next week. How did the Thessalonian people help each other live for God while they were looking for Christ? Okay. And then finally, we're going to look at the natural results. The natural results of faithful living for people who are always looking. Now, I told you a few minutes ago to put your finger in chapter 5 and chapter 1. Let's look at chapter 5 verse first. We're going to go to the end, and then we'll go to the beginning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, we've already read. Right? We know that the God of peace, His desire is to sanctify us entirely here on earth as we await His coming. But then he says in verse 24 something. This is the nature. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Now, what's it? Okay? I really believe verse 24 is directly connected to verse 23. The goal is holy living. The goal is, by God's grace, for each of us as individuals, but together with somebody else, to be driven by that grace, to be prepared in holy living as much as we can each day. And if we're doing that, that is proving something very, very important here. The nature of our faithfulness is it's sourced in God himself. Since, not if, since it's God who called you, this is the same God who called you by his grace, who compels you by that grace, unto an it, unto a goal. And we do this together, and it's holy living. Faithful is he who called you. That was a righteous calling unto a righteous Savior. You have been Legally given that righteousness. Now we live by that same righteousness. The God who called you is the God. The same God. Who is bringing this goal. The pursuit of this goal to pass. And where did all that begin? Well now we go back to chapter 1 and we'll finish there this morning. Where did it all begin for each of us that would say, I know Jesus. <laughs> I can remember uh, when I was transformed by his grace. I can remember that aha, miraculous moment where I felt released from the bondage of being governed by my sin and religiosity. And now I'm, now I'm, now I'm only governed by the freedom that's in Jesus. And, and uh, what Paul says here in chapter 1 is really the has everything to do with the nature of how what God started all began. And what God's going to finish. Really, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, my friends, verses uh, 2 to 5 is just really an explanation of how the Thessalonian people heard the gospel, heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul's writing this, he's remembering clear back to Acts chapter 17, when he first walked into this city and went to the synagogue and preached Christ. So he's, he's remembering in his own mind their reception of the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, we give thanks to God always. Verse 2, 
for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his what? His choice of you. Faithful is he who called you, who will also bring it to pass. We know his choice of you. Why? Because of what he described their living was in verse 3. We just read that, right? Faithful looking always leads to faithful living. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men reproved to be among you for your sake. Because our gospel came to you, he's remembering Acts 16, and the Holy Spirit was governing their words as they preached the gospel. They knew the power of God and the Holy Spirit to change their lives. And as he's already said, he gives thanks to them for them in his prayers, for their, the character of their living in verse 3. But faithful looking and faithful living all begins here in the nature of who God is and what he's done for each of us. So therefore, we can say confidently that we are, we are ultimately all compelled by this calling grace, if you will, this sustaining grace to look and to live. I don't know about you, but from the time I was five years old when I first trusted Christ, right? I remember it, I'm 50, 45 years ago. I remember it like yesterday. When I fell on my knees with my father and I trusted Christ as he led me to Christ. And at five years old, I felt like I was the most miserable sinner on earth. I really believed I was. I wasn't thinking about anyone else but me and how wicked I was when I was five. I wasn't thinking, man, my brother's a lot more <laughs> disobedient than I am. I mean, he should be doing this, not me. Oh, my sister, mercy. If my dad only knew what she was doing, right? She'd be on her knees here before me, right? And then that, that dude at church that I sit in Sunday school with every week, the one that's always getting in trouble. I never get in trouble in Sunday school. I'm like the good kid, right? Why am I here? No, you don't think like that when you're getting saved, do you? There is nobody else on earth that's a more wicked sinner than you are when you're about to get saved. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I gave my life to Christ and repented from my sins as much as a five-year-old could, it was, all, it was all sourced in God. There's no one else in my life on earth that could persuade my little heart that I was that dark at five. And then to give me enough grace to live for the next 45 years faithfully, struggling through this life unto hopefully greater Christ-likeness. No man could do that but the God-man. Faithful is he that called me. Faithful is the one that chose me. Go figure out that ministry, mystery. As a matter of fact, don't try. It's a mystery. Why us? I don't know. But it was a choice. But that grace, 
that help from heaven that we described on Wednesday night here, that help from heaven, really, it doesn't just underpin all who we are and what we do. It compels us. It thrusts us to make sure we live faithfully as we are looking faithfully. It's all sourced in God. That's the nature of it. And since it starts with him, chapter 1, he's confident it's also going to finish with him. And what's the finish for us? Faithful living unto holiness so that when we are finished with our time in this age, in the church, and when we see Jesus in his, all of his holiness, we're more like him then than we are today. Amen. Only we're doing this together. So a couple questions as we close. Do you know Jesus? I think a lot of us may know, not a lot of us, some of us may know a lot about him, but we may not have him in our heart yet. And I always tell you, right, the longest 18, 15 inches in the world is from here to here. Have you given your heart to Jesus, okay? And if you have, I want to ask you this, because what we're going to see next week in the nurturing and the natural results of faithful, holy living, we're going to see that this is done together. Are you doing this together with another believer? Husbands and wives and families, you ought to be doing this for sure in your homes together. But inside this local church, among us, who's helping you and who are you helping be prepared to meet Jesus? We do this together. The Bible has told us that. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. While our heads are bowed, I really believe there's probably some folks here this morning that know about Jesus but have never known him yet personally. And I would like to help you pray to trust Christ as your Savior this morning. Remember, it's God who, who draws it's God who starts it, so it's God who finishes it. So if God's working on your heart, and you know that because he's kind of pushing you, he's nudging you to look to Jesus as your Savior, just, just pray from your own heart to the Lord and just say, Dear Father, I, I know I'm a sinner. That's not hard to figure out. I don't believe there's any man that can save me or forgive me of my sins. But I believe Jesus can. Just say, Lord, I turn from my sin and myself. And I place my faith in you as my Savior. Lord Jesus, I open my heart. Come into my heart and save me. Save me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for doing for me what I could never do for myself. Thank you for saving me, cleansing me from my sin, and giving me eternal life.
Thank you for hearing me this morning. If you prayed that prayer while heads are bowed, I'm not going to seek to embarrass you, but I'd like to pray for you this week. If you prayed that prayer this morning and owned the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time exclusively as your Lord and Savior, would you slip up your hand? I'm not going to have you stand or be embarrassed or named. I'd just like to pray for you this week. Anyone at all? If you prayed to invite Jesus into your heart this morning, raising your hand doesn't save you. He heard you already. If you meant that from your heart, you're already saved. Anyone at all? Thank you. Thank you. There's no greater peace or joy that you can experience on earth than to know the peace that Christ can bring and the joy that He is that he desires to be. Anyone else? If you're too embarrassed to raise your hand this morning, that's completely understandable. I'm going to be out in the fellowship hall. Pastor Mike, Pastor Steve, Pastor Kent will be there. You can tell someone that you came with. I would just like to pray for you, okay? For the Christians who are here that I really don't want to raise of hands this morning, but in light of next week, I just want you to prayerfully consider something over the next six days, okay? Who am I preparing? Or am I being prepared by another believer to see the Lord Jesus? Okay? Simple enough. We do this together. We're going to see him together. So we're going to walk in pursuing Christ's likeness in our living together as we're looking for him. Okay? Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simplicity of your word. Jesus is coming again. That excites our hearts, but it ought to energize our lives as it excites our hearts. Faithful looking leads to faithful living. Help us, Lord, by your grace to know what it means to do that together as a church family. We love you. We love these people. Help us to love each other unto holy living as we expectantly await to see our Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.